Hear the gospel of our Saviour Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sadducee, Pharisee, and scribe, every demon 
knew that something strange and different and new was taking place before their very eyes. The crowds were crushing in on him. The leaders were watching him like a hawk, plotting how to kill him. And the demons were shrieking, son of the most high God in his presence. He is, as M.T. Wright's paradox describes, at once both dangerously holy and wonderfully encouraging. I love that. He is both dangerously holy and wonderfully encouraging. He's splendid. Wouldn't you have wanted to have been at his feet if you had lived in those days? Don't you feel your heart quicken at the very thought of him? A little bit like how the scribe's heart must have been beating when he came near him. Because this is an encounter of a different kind to the previous one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees recorded in the previous verses have been out to trap him with their questions about tax and resurrection. But this scribe, having witnessed these debates, was impressed at how Jesus quoted the law back to them and confounded them. Here he saw in Jesus not just one who knew the law, but one who could wield it in debate and silence his opponent. And for the scribe, this was a skill to be admired. This scribe was impressed with Jesus. And as he approached Jesus, he entered into the debating ring with one he recognized as a worthy opponent. Don't you sense it? It's going to be both a dangerously holy and encouraging encounter. And so this lover of the law, with a life's mission of being able to distill the law to its kernel, asks his question. Which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus does not disappoint. In one fell swoop, he takes the Shema of Israel, Hear, O Israel, from Deuteronomy, repeated by every pious Jew morning and evening. And he binds it to a verse in Leviticus, to love neighbour as yourself. With consummate brilliance, he summarises the first four commandments, which speak of love towards God, and the last six, which relate to our relationship with others. Now while the scribe marvels at Jesus's answer, and we can sense the, the thrill of the sparks flying between these two experts, we have to pause and ask, if this is the first commandment, what does it mean for us? For we have here a paradox. You might know by now I love the paradox. <laughs> for how can love be commanded? So we have to ask, what is the context of these words? How would an ancient Israel, or for that matter, this first century scribe, understand these words that obviously delight him? 
And there are three things here that shed light on this conundrum for us. Firstly, there is the concept of covenant treaty language which comes to bear. Political treaties from the time which scholars denote are replicated in Israel's covenant language with Yahweh show how the customary reference to love actually means loyalty, fidelity, and obedience. This is no flighty emotion, as modern, the modern Western mind might imagine it. And then secondly, related to the correct understanding of the command to love, is the correct translation of how the Hebrew understood the function of the heart. In English, the heart is understood as the seat of emotions. In Hebrew, it's the kidneys and bowels that are a seat of emotions. The heart, on the other hand, is the, is the seat of decision-making, the will, and understanding. So therefore, it does fit. Love as loyal, faithful obedience can be commanded because it reigns in the realm of our thinking and decision-making. In this case, love is a choice to obey. And then thirdly, when we understand the true source of emotional love, which is a reality, love that commands loyalty and obedience then is not a Hobson's choice. It's not faith plus comfort, but it is a rational, intelligent, desirable choice. Because the command to love is not devoid of emotion. When you understand the overwhelming force that initiated the covenant in the first place, which is what we would understand as emotional, heartfelt love. Listen to these covenant words from Exodus and tell me that you don't sense a burning passion. The Lord called to Moses from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now I therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. And then as he describes himself to his people, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so it is, as John says, we love because he first loved us. So the paradox works, and it's a three-way thing because it is a covenant command, but it's born out of the God who is love eternal. It is an intelligent decision made of free will. And it thrills both the seat of our mind and our heart. So therefore, with the Spirit's help, the new covenant fulfills the old as we give all our energies of mind and might to this noblest task of loving God, which Jesus so skillfully uses to love of neighbour 
and oneself. This is first things first. Deep love, honour and obey. Seeking first his kingdom of love within ourselves and for our neighbour to his glory. So we too can delight in Jesus' response as much as the scribe did. So the first half of this sermon could be entitled The Paradox of First Things First. Now the second half could be entitled Close But No Cigar. As one commentator says, to ask which is the first commandment is like asking what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Now, I am not suggesting here that when one enters the kingdom of heaven, one is handed a big cigar. Because anybody who knows me knows that I would be aghast at such a suggestion. And perhaps, perhaps it is wrong of me to use such a trite saying when talking about something of such vital eternal significance. But if the phrase sticks with the seriousness of what I'm going to say next, it will have served its purpose. You see, the scribe is so pleased with Jesus' answer, he affords him now the title of teacher. And likewise, as the conversation continues, Jesus' heart is warmed with the scribe's wise addition when he says that this commandment is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here, the lover of the law quotes the law back to the lawgiver. The scribe is exhilarated to find an expert in the law to share knowledge with. And Jesus is impressed with one who succinctly understands the heart of his law just as the prophet Hosea spoke forth God's word when he said, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But Jesus does not leave it there. In his praise, Jesus does not affirm him as he did Nathaniel. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And then let him go in his way assured in his intelligence and comfortable in his religion. Indeed, having just ridden into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna to the son of David and clearing the temple, all of which the scribe would have been aware of, and with the clock running down in days and hours to his impending crucifixion, Jesus does not come straight out and say to the earnest scribe, I am the one you should love with all your heart and soul and mind. Jesus knows that this man is a thinker and is inviting him to think it out for himself. And so he says, in a way I imagine to be both warm and encouraging, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I imagine the body language and the eye contact would have spoken volumes in this encounter as they held each other's gaze. Heart to heart, Jesus is making a connection with the scribe that says in not so many words, 
Watch what I'm going to do in these next few days. Watch me die and watch me rise again. Then make the decision to love me and to follow me and to be part of my kingdom. Jesus knows no matter how much this scribe loves the law, it will not save him. Only he can save him. He is the Messiah that the scribe is waiting for. So Jesus tells him he's close to the kingdom, but he's letting him know that there is another step that he will have to make. Now, if I was preaching this sermon on a regular Sunday morning, I would most probably labor this point to the congregation on a personal level of decision to come into the kingdom. But here this evening, with a very dry mouth, I find myself before a congregation of those like myself, training for ministry, and before those who teach us and guide us. Our job in educating and learning how to go and make disciples of all men is no easy task. But in this passage, Jesus shows us how he did it before a knowledgeable and hungry heart. Jesus' evangelism is both warm and encouraging and inviting. But with a but. But it is nonetheless honest and direct. He leaves no ambiguity before this honest scribe. For by saying that he is not far from the kingdom, he is letting him know gently but honestly that he is not in the kingdom. He is warning this intelligent thinker that in the next number of days, there will be more to wrestle with and more to come to terms with and another decision to be made. For then, as is now, entry into the kingdom is always, ever, and only through Jesus. And as witnesses to this message of entering into the kingdom, we must therefore be at pains not to confuse and mix it with other things. Like Daryl said, our traditional rituals, church attendance, good works, as edifying and as good as they are. Just as my training curate was at pains to share with me, as she took me on my first parish visiting round a few weeks ago, and as we were talking, she said to me, we must ensure that they know how much God loves them. But we must in some way venture into that area of their love for him. And it's these words that have a significant impact on John Wesley. Just before his famous evening attendance, at Aldersgate in 1738, Wesley recalled randomly opening his Bible and reading the beautiful words, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then we all know what happens next. 
as he writes, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. But what I did not know, and only discovered in the process of researching for this sermon, was that Wesley had many conversations, even as an ordained clergyman, searching for that conviction of a personal faith. And one such conversation was with a famous Christian at the time, William Law. And reflecting on this conversation with Law, Wesley writes, writes of him, how will you answer to our common Lord that you, sir, never led me to the light? Why did I scarcely ever hear you name the name of Christ? Why did you never urge me to faith in his blood? Is not Christ the first and last? If you say you thought I had faith already, verily you know nothing of me. It is the truth, as you know, we will have many conversations in the course of our pastoral ministry, at bedsides, in front rooms, round kitchen tables, and in all manner of strange places. And this passage prepares us, and indeed anyone who wants to speak up for Jesus, this passage prepares us for those conversations. So I ask you, do you want to be dangerously bold and wonderfully encouraging? Because this passage challenges us to love him. And that is a passionate, loyal, obedient love. And to love our neighbours. And then, both warmly, but honestly, call out the one step necessary when someone is only near the kingdom, but not in it. It is always, only ever, a turning to Jesus that brings one into the kingdom. It is that step that makes all the difference. And it is both the privilege and the duty of those of us in the kingdom to encourage those outside the kingdom to take that plunge into that full and free assurance that grows a heartfelt, loyal, obedient love to Jesus who first loved us. Amen. Let us pray.